Would you recommend that arbitrage be something that somebody who's just getting to the space look at? Or if you're a little pessimistic about it, should they just wait until they can purchase and get the full benefits? Two pro tips that I'll throw out there. I would say, A, yes to arbitrage if you can get the contract and then get the door. B, co-hosting is better, but it's a credibility thing. So... All right, all right, all right. We got the Real Estate Law Podcast here. Another episode, Jason Muth with Straightforward Short-Term Rentals and Pride Away Stays. And we have attorney and broker Rory Gill in front of a lovely brick background. What's up, Rory? Uh, not much. I mean, today's conversation, we have a great guest who's going to touch on all of our favorite topics here. Life as an attorney, lifestyle freedom, short-term rentals, medium-term rentals, and everything in between there. So I don't know how yeah. we're going to contain this to one podcast, but we'll do our best. I, I don't know how to contain our guests. I mean, like, you know, I, we're, we've been friends for about a year now. You know, I met Mike Stone uh, in Miami at a retreat, a short-term rental retreat last year. And he's part of the STR Secrets Mastermind that I've talked about multiple times in this podcast. And uh, Mike was a really active participant when I first joined. So when I went to Miami by myself, not knowing anybody in person, and I heard his voice at the bar, I'm like, that's Mike Stone. <laughs> so I went up to him and I introduced myself and you knew who I was. But uh, Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Yeah, Miami was a blast. It was great meeting you there. And it's been a great opportunity just to know you as we figure this stuff out together in the short-term rental world. Yeah, I, you know, Mike and I reconnected a little bit on Instagram a couple of weeks ago. Um, you know, not that we've lost touch, but you know, we, our life keeps us busy. We can't just sit around chatting online all the time. And and you live in Arizona, right? Yes. Yeah. Phoenix yeah. For the last few years. Uh, so so um, so I started seeing Mike posting this content again online. It's like it's like a phoenix. He resurrected. Like he just you know, <laughs> it was just kind of dormant for a while. And then uh, a magazine came out, and you were you were the cover story on this magazine, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, July, I think, if I remember correctly. July magazine so, throws this cover, throw, throws the cover of the magazine out there, gets tons of comments from people that we both know. Then there's a photo shoot, you know, and then suddenly there's all this content, a new brand with the Mike Stone Group. You know, it's I, I think that you either somebody's in your ear as to what to do, or you are purposefully and consciously saying, I need to get myself out there a little bit more. We're doing a little bit of rebranding. We're, we've really upped our game. And I should say that Mike Mike has been in the short-term rental space for a number of years. He's really focusing on medium-term rentals right now, being an excellent operator and also helping others, you know, with a coaching program that he's launching. Uh, so there's a lot that we want to talk about. Um, you know, you're, you're a, uh, you're still barred, right? As an attorney, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. my Arizona license. And if I finish ever the uh, character fitness paperwork, I'll have my New York license as well. But that's been floating in my ether. There's a little <laughs> electron around my, so I, I haven't finished that yet. But yeah, definitely Arizona and I'll keep it active if I might as well. Yeah. So we can't say a lapsed attorney, right? Because you're actually an active attorney, which is good. So we got two attorneys on this. So we're going to lean into the word law a little bit on this uh, this podcast. But, you know, it's it's someone that you've moved away from the law world, right? And And you're focusing more on uh, the short-term and medium-term rentals. Tell us about how, how that transition happened and, and why you did that. Sure, yeah. I'll go into, sometimes I keep it a little bit shorter of a story, but I'll tell you guys the full story since this is literally the real estate law podcast. So I started out really enjoying law school. I had great friends, great internships. I loved my classes. I was really good at it, top of my class. Everything was just lining up where I was like, this is going to be not only a great opportunity for my career, but also I'll be good at it. I expect to make a lot of money. So all good things. I get 
towards the end of school and I'm, you know, applying, I got a clerkship. So again, I feel, you know, the status of like, wow, I just got an Arizona clerkship. It was state Supreme Court, uh, state court of appeals. So not as prestigious as a federal clerkship, but still being able to work in the judges chambers and help make decisions and learn from that perspective was awesome. And certainly it was competitive to get that. So it felt great. Um, once I started that, I was like, I'm in a whole new world. I don't like this at all. I didn't particularly enjoy working with that judge. I didn't particularly agree on actually almost any of the decisions we came to. We had a lot of redrafting going on in chambers and a lot of uh, contentious discussions over interpretations. And so it was, you know, certainly a good experience in retrospect. But at the time I was like, this may not be for me. And then I remember, so I got a job in big law in downtown Phoenix, um, but it was right in that COVID window. So it was a hiring freeze through the whole city, really the country, but I did plan to stay here. And it was a hiring freeze for all of the big law firms that I wanted to work at, including the one where I was just interning. And I was, you know, I, it's too early summer, you know, everything's getting teed up and I had a great relationship with the partners there. So I really thought this was going to be perfect. And the guy emails me, he's, oh, I want to send you to the Denver office so you can meet these guys and definitely going to work here. He goes, look, it's just this COVID hiring freeze. We're not hiring anybody. You would be the guy, but I just, I got nothing. So I realized at that point that in the law space, the two things that were still going on quite a bit during COVID was car accidents and divorces. Those were my choices. I could go into insurance or family law. And so I, between the two, I love contracts. I really do. I always have. So I started my career in insurance defense litigation. I do like litigation and I got the opportunity to handle 45 something litigation cases in my short career. So it was nice getting that fast paced trial. Um, I was awesome at it. Like I was really good. I, as a defense attorney settling for $0 multiple times on the phone, with my boss is like, this, there's no way we get out of this. I'm like, there's no way I'm settling. <laughs> so it was, it was a lot of fun. I was good at it. And, uh, but man, I, I, other than that competitive nature of it, the winning part, I enjoyed the entire rest of that job. I did not. And so it became clear to me very quickly that I wanted to make a pivot. And that's when I started learning about investing. That was my key to what I consider my current amount of freedom is learning about investing. And first it was stocks, then it was real estate, then it was Airbnb. And when I was, was learning about Airbnb, I realized how much of it was on all fours with everything else I had learned about real estate and investing, but without such a initial capital investment. Yep. So that's, that's where it all unfolded. And I started the coaching programs and, and I've been yep. out of, out of law ever since. Before we venture too far off into the world of time freedom and working in the investment space. A lot of people who move out of the W-2 space kind of regret not leveraging the some of the advantages that you have while you're in the W-2 space to kind yeah. of get into the investment space. Can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. Uh, the word that comes to mind is impulsive because I was so excited to get out of law and into the next thing that I pulled the trigger in what was six weeks from the day I learned about Airbnb, I put it two weeks notice. So eight weeks total and I'm out. In that amount of time, I could have applied for conventional financing with a great paycheck to show the bank and my bankability would have been fantastic. Okay, lawyer um, reasonably controlling his student debt, plus we were in COVID forbearance. I easily could have gotten you know, a good loan. Had that be my first property, whether I made it a primary, a temporary primary that I then move out of, or actually just pay the 20% down, get a, you know, a small starter investment property. I had those options available to me and I just didn't have the financial education to realize that that would have been such a detriment. So I get out thinking, oh, I'll figure it out later. This is great. I'll have my whole new business. Yes, but that uh, 5X leverage on a 20% down property would have been really nice. 
with a lawyer salary that I then now have to wait, have to wait at least two years to get, um, you know, two years in, in business. But even then it's, you know, starting, start out, starter company, uh, start upcoming, I mean, and some messy books and it's like, you know, not super bankable. Yeah. So can you translate that into some advice for somebody who's in that situation, somebody who has one of those careers and is looking to make a change? Um, so maybe they're a little less impulsive when they go to, <laughs> to make the change? Sure. Yeah. I, in simplest terms, I would say buy your first in investment property if you can afford it, or at least a primary that you expect to move out of and rent later. Buy one before you quit. It is as simple as that, I think, um, because when you are in a position to get lending, you should take advantage of that before you then start your new chapter and everybody else looks at you as a huge risk. And it's true. I mean, as a startup entrepreneur, who wants to lend to you? You, you have a, more, a much larger chance of failing than succeeding on paper. And you can't really attribute mindset stuff to uh, bankability. So I would yeah. say just get your ducks in order first. Spend the money if you can. And honestly, I think one of the nice things too is even in that short window of when I was quitting, having the paycheck to fund some of the mistakes and, and things I didn't realize in starting the business. It only, you know, was that short period of time, but there was a couple thousand dollars that I just didn't realize I'd have to pay. And well, like, at least I have my paycheck coming in. So you can make it a lot smoother and less aggressive than my pivot. What was your mindset like when you, you know, you went to law school, you passed the bar, it's challenging to do all of those things. You did well at it. And then you got into that career and you said, I don't want to do this. I think there's a lot of people that that happens to, and they just kind of continue doing that thing, whether it's med school, law school, some other professional career that they study for years and years and years. And they finally come to the realization when they reach the real world that this is not for me. You know, what was, what was your mindset like there? What were your friends and family telling you? It's a great question. There's, there's a lot of things that were going on at that point where it's, you know, on the one hand, I had $181,000 of student debt. So that's, you know, before you even get to the emotional side of things, it's like, okay, well, that's a responsibility. Then, you know, parents, friends, like, what are you talking about? You just did all this. Why would you spend all the time and the money and the effort and the, why would you do that? And so it's, you know, the people who are telling you like, Hey, just, you have a role. I'm pretty stubborn in that sense where it wasn't so difficult for me to be like, I know that's what I did, but it was, that's not for me. So I need to pivot. It was pretty much set in stone in my head. So it was easier for me to decline, you know, the, the pullbacks of like, but you're a lawyer, but you did this. But even my boss was like, I don't understand why you're quitting. You're good at it. And it sounds like you like it. And in the back of my head, I was like, well, you think I like it because you see the fun parts. I I'm going to bed at night. I'm like, I just don't want to wake up at nine tomorrow. I just don't want to. You know what I mean? It's like, and now I wake up and like, I'm at 630. I'm excited to wake up for what I'm doing now. So then when, when I was in that state of it, I mean, there was a period that I don't want to label it depression, but I was, I was pretty miserable for a really long time. And I was, and, and that pain is all it took. It's like that, that pain of waking up and being like, I don't want to do this today. These billable hours are bullshit. The case I'm working on is either so easy or so hard. Like this is, it's already over. So I'm just going through the motions. It feels useless. The other attorneys are, are you know, annoying me for whatever reason, especially litigation. So it's like, you know, I just, all I wanted to do was remove myself from that. So the mindset was really, I could either stay in pain or I could change it. And that's what I was like, when I read a couple of books about investing, it was like, oh, not only can I change it, but I could change it so dramatically that I get to keep all my goals about financial success and live a lifestyle that I like better. Uh, my brother was super helpful. My brother and I got really, uh, I mean, we've been on and off close forever, but the, when I was studying for the bar, I was like 
really just stressed, not, not depressed as much as stress. And he was just always in my ear, like, don't worry, you got this. Like he would direct me to Tony Robbins was my first ever mindset kind of coach. And um, so he'd give me some books to, to read. And that's what led me into the whole personal development space really is my brother pushing me during the bar exam to start learning about it. And so when it came time to make the shift, it was like, like I said, I could either stay in pain and be miserable doing this job that I really hate, or I can go try this new thing. And I was like, I have to try. I have to try. I have to try because this isn't it. And I don't want to go backwards and go back to bartending and managing restaurants. That's not the next step up. I have to keep progressing. So what's above law and growing up, you know, it's so easy to think like, okay, doctor, lawyer, that's the pinnacle. That's what you hear. And, and both obviously respectable and lucrative positions. So why wouldn't it be? But then it's like, as soon as I learned about investing, it was just, Oh, Oh, that's the way to do it instead. They don't tell you about investing. That's one of those things that if you're, if it's not in your family, like in the DNA of your family, you have to find out about it yourself. They don't teach it in school. Um, you know, yeah. we, we all have to find it online. And then the people that are in our ear are either supportive or they're saying, just be careful. You know, you don't want to buy that course or you don't want to get scammed, you know? So there is a little bit of a sniff test that has to go, go into it. But, you know, a lot of people we talk to on this podcast, find their way to what you're doing, what I'm doing at various points in their working career. You found your way to it earlier in your career after your, you know, your postgraduate studies. Mm -hmm. I found my way to it, you know, 25 years into my career, right? Where right. I kind of, you know, I was fortunate that I really never had that 6.30 wake up where I'm like, I don't want to go to work. Like I, I, I liked what I did for many, many years. I worked in the media for a long time, you know, behind the scenes, like in research around the sales teams. But, you know, toward the end, it got boring, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it was the same thing. It was like, you know, I like this other thing I'm doing on the side better. You know, this is more exciting, right? And that's probably what you've discovered too. And, you know, tell me about why why what you're doing now really juices you up. And that makes you excited to wake up at 6.30 in the morning or 5.30, whatever time you're up versus yeah. the law world. Oh man, I, I so love everything I'm building now. It feels like I'm in complete control of what I'm building. Like having the seat at the top of the machine and just saying, well, if we do this differently and improve that, then I get to live my life like this. I'm not dealing with vendors I don't like. I'm not dealing with clients I don't like. I'm not dealing with bosses, most importantly, or any sort of authority that I don't like, except maybe Airbnb's policies. But the, um, you know, different, different things that I get to choose give me that fulfillment. I wake up and I'm like, well, today I want to work on the marketing side of things. I don't even want to think about some of the other projects. But truthfully, now it's like even the stressful projects seen this meme a couple of times, Pace Morby first, where he was like, you know, I quit my nine to five and now I work 24 seven and that's how it feels, but I don't mind. I wake up, I start working, I work until bed. I fit some things in around that sometimes, but really like I don't have um, family obligations. I'm not married with kids and my friends understand that this is my priority. So as much as I love them, I'll see them for the important events like weddings. I don't go out to the bar on Saturday. It's just not my MO. Mm -hmm. So this is just the way I prefer to live. It feels like I have just complete autonomy and that's the most rewarding thing. That's, that's very fulfilling. Your point about the, uh, you know, it's exciting. Like, you know, getting these properties, to me, properties are sexy. There's like, I, this house is cool. Redesigning it is cool. Then you see the money come in. It feels like a video game, playing the Airbnb app video game. Like, oh, I just made all these improvements in real life and now these people are paying me more money. I'm winning. It feels great. I've seen some of the properties that you're managing and they just look stunning. You know, you. we'll, we'll put all the links to everything in the show notes, obviously, if you want to oh, follow Mike, you. You know, Mike Stone group, but um, so all-star hospitality is the co-hosting arm. 
of yes. what you're doing, right? And at at one point you were doing Airbnb arbitrage, right? I remember you were telling me about some new building that you, but I think you're out of that now. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. That is that is one of my main war stories in STRs. My second deal ever. I so I was running my my first deal was a quad. It was going really well, an arbitrage deal. And so I saw another quad that was twice as pretty and twice as expensive. And I called the guy and I told him, I was like, listen, I don't even have the inventory to meet the demand. I'm doing so well with this first quad and I'm comfortable running a quad and moving people around for, you know, reservations. I was way too manual at that point, my business as well. But I was like, this one will be just as easy. Let me, let me do this. And in my mind, twice as expensive. I'll charge twice as much. I'll make twice the profit. Now we know that's not how math works. It was just more expensive <laughs> and it was, you know, not that much more lucrative. And so it was, I was underwater. I actually lost a ton of money on that deal. That deal lost me enough money that I will never do arbitrage again for the risk profile alone. And I completely co-host now. So the same business. And I, I still have uh, six arbitrage units. My original four plus two more that I made around the same time as that second deal. It's my third deal. It's two other uh, single family home with a guest house in the back. And they do so well and they are very easy to run. And so I'm just not getting rid of them, but I'm certainly not looking to take on more guaranteed rent and guaranteed furniture and guaranteed mm -hmm. so arbitrage. And no equity, no appreciation, no, no tax benefits. I understand the risk profile of, I need to cover my mortgage, my insurance, and you know you want cash flow, of course. I understand that risk, but to pay someone else's mortgage, to what end? And and then you're not getting tax benefits. You can't do a cost seg. You can't. There's just nothing. You're just throwing money into somebody else's pocket. It, it has to. It worked for me to get started, right? I can't complain too much. It gave me my freedom, but at the same time, it's a starter tactic. And as soon as you can own or co-host, it's just a better strategy, in my opinion. Would you recommend that arbitrage be something that somebody who's just getting to the space look at? Or if you're a little pessimistic about it, should they just wait until they can purchase and get the, the full benefits? Two pro tips that I'll throw out there. I would say, A, yes to arbitrage if you can get the contract and then get the door. B, co-hosting is better, but it's a credibility thing. So in, in order, contract to the door, I do it all the time where, especially my midterm rentals, they'll send me an inquiry and they'll say, hey, I need a place for X amount of time. I'll then go find a homeowner and say, hey, I have a guest who needs five months. Do you mind taking a shorter lease? You know, whether it's furnished or unfurnished, I can deal with that too. Then I know that my obligations as an arbitrageur are only that of that lease. And I make that very clear. We can get into that. I have a, a story about it. But where that contract, I am not going to be the one on that contract, especially the midterm rental. You have obligations to the guest and the insurer, usually in my midterm rentals. And that's the arrangement that I'll set up. I don't want to then have the next seven months of the year, I'm obligated to chase that rent payment. When this guest leaves, our entire relationship ends unless I can find you another door. So that's one way to completely mitigate your risk is you're only gonna arbitrage where you have the guest first paying you and then you have the funds to pay less to somebody else. Don't say, oh, somebody else, I'll pay you no matter what. Now let me go chase guests. That's, that's the difference I would say. And then secondarily is if you're just getting started, the credibility issue is the main reason to do arbitrage over co-hosting because nobody, I shouldn't say nobody, it's less likely that someone will trust you with their property. To that end, my best recommendation, I am so glad I have coaches, I'm in the right rooms. And then instead of trying to get your first arbitrage deal by taking financial risk, leverage the reputation of your group. Hey, I'm in Mike Shogren's group. You may not know him, but this is what we learned. This is how we do it. Best operators in the country, best coaches in the country. I know everything. I just don't have the property to do it with. Can we partner? 
If you find the right person to partner with you on that and you give them the right pitch and you deliver that you are all in, all committed, this is what's going to happen. Your success is contingent on them covering their mortgage and making more cash flow than they would if they had a traditional long-term renter. If you can sell that, then they could give you that first co-host opportunity. After the first, it'll be much easier. I remember hearing that a lot when I was getting started too, is after you get your first deal, it's easier. It is so much easier after your first. So really just get started with one, put the work in, find the guy. I would, I would still recommend co-hosting co -hosting over arbitrage. Yeah. Wow. I, I could see the litigation coming out. Like I, I could see the attorney, like just in my the screen, like, you know, you're, you're very persuasive with the way that you sell and, you know, attorneys have to sell. Um, and yeah, and now you're definitely in a sales role. Um, I, I'd never heard of the arbitrage strategy, you know, kind of presented that way. I've always heard people talking about it where they'll rent a property, you know, they'll commit to it and then they have to go, you basically find short-term rentals or medium-term rentals. Instead, you're, you're finding the guest, you know, if the guest has an $8,000 budget and you find a place that's, you know, 5k a month, you're just going to pocket the difference when you can, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. That's the best. I just had my biggest win on that this past week. I had somebody reach out to me from my insurance relationships she said she needed to replace a 12,000 square foot home and it was water damaged. I was like, wow. She goes, is there something like that in your portfolio? And I was like, let me find out for you. So, so I just started turning Let me around. check. Let me look up on database right here. Yeah, now you're making phone calls, right? <laughs> That's, it. That's it. So literally what I did is I got on Zillow and I started making phone calls. I reached out to a realtor and I said, send me everything. She was... Her and her partner, the two of them are um, excellent luxury realtors. So they have a lot of multi-million dollar um, listings. So I was like, anything that's open, tell me. Let's figure it out with the owner. I don't care. Let's send me everything that you have. Can you get me anything on the MLS? So while I'm looking through Zillow, she sent me 14 listings from the MLS that were for rent, multi-million dollar homes. And I was like, this is perfect. Cold called all 14 of them. 12 of them actually thought I was, uh, 12 of them wouldn't deal with me. One of them thought I was a scam. But the other one, I uh, I knew from negotiating with the guest side first that their budget would have been $45,000 a month. I turned around and found something for $33,000 a month. So I I have a contract now for five months that I'm, I have no obligations. They, uh, the party understands that the insurer is paying, that the guest is responsible for damages, and that I'm just a host. And I'm going to make $12,000 a month margin for the next five months. Wow. $33,000 a month on the long-term rentals also, you know, quite eye-opening, but this must be a massive property. I, yeah, it's 8,000 square feet was the replacement. She, The guest declined a few 6,000 square feet, and we literally, nothing in Arizona is 12,000 square feet. The closest we found was 11,000 square feet in Gold Canyon, Arizona, which is so much in the middle of nowhere. Completely the desert, and I don't want to send anybody out there. So I we was like, how about you try actual Scottsdale for 8,000 square feet, and she was happy. It's a little but, more space, a little more space out there than there is here in Massachusetts. Yeah, a little bit. But the but now that obligation of thirty three thousand dollars a month, like I wouldn't have even had the conversation with the owner about obligating myself to that. That's not even a thought. But now, as a contract first, and then getting the door, that's a no brainer with no risk as an arbitrage deal. We'll then co-host actually at the end of this five month contract. I sh I showed value first. I got her this deal. She's now making a ton of money for five months. She's like, this is great. Can we keep going? Sure. We'll change the, the risk profile again to co-host. But, you know, again, I, I arbitrage first. I show you that I can do it and you get the money. And now let's let's go in it together because you'll get 75 percent of that 45,000, which is actually around the same. So 
you're talking about a medium term rental right here, which you mm -hmm. clearly pivoted over into. And a lot of your content is about medium term rentals. Um, you know, you just shared something that I actually hadn't heard people doing before. And I'm guessing you're going to have a lot more of that, you know, kind of in your back pocket. Talk about all the relationships you've built with all of these uh, insurance companies, you know, that are placing people who, who need uh, to find accommodations because they have water damage, fire damage, whatever the issue is going to be. I know last year when we were talking in person, you were investing heavily in building these relationships with these companies. Yeah. Where do you start doing something like that? And like, what have you learned along the way? Excellent question. And funny, you brought me back to mentally uh, Miami when we were hanging out. I remember being outside the bar and I kept having to walk away to take phone calls for my first ever midterm rental, which was like some, like a $13,000 contract for it was like two and a half or three months or something, whatever it ended up being, but it was a great deal. And I was thrilled. So that's that day is really when I got started. I remember I actually had to run up to the hotel to finish drafting that contract to get it out in time. Cause I even hanging out with you guys, I was like, I don't want to lose this 13, 15, whatever it was thousand. So I got started. They reached out to me first, actually. They, the, the first time I ever heard about it was when an insurance company or let me, let me back up. So the way it'll work is there's an insurance company with the insured family, of course. They're paying their premiums and paying the policy. That policy generally allocates 20 to 30% of the total home value for alternative living expenses. So that company, ALE Solutions, that's what that stands for, is alternative living expenses if there's damage to the original subject property. So when that happens, the insurance company, I don't know if they actually try to find the housing themselves first. They may have a department. I, I haven't gotten that far. Um, although that is on my radar, but they'll reach out to another company like ALE Solutions, their competitors, you can research it all on Google, there's a bunch of them, then ALE Solutions will try to find Zillow or whatever to, you know, fill the properties themselves, um, or to find the properties themselves, I mean, for the insured, that's how ALE Solutions makes money. If they can't, they'll reach out to someone like me saying, hey, I can't find anything on Zillow, can you provide accommodations for this family? It's, you know, a couple with one kid and a dog. And they're in zip code 85254, where can you uh, provide a local property that's similar? This is their school district for the kid. This is, you know, their pet requirements. This is all the, you know, fenced in yard, whatever it is, they give me that. And those parameters usually are actually a lot easier to accommodate than anything short-term rental. And so I just say, yeah, of course we can do that in this home or that home. And I submit it back to ALE Solutions. They seek approval from the adjuster. When that happens and they're seeking approval from the adjuster, I'm now playing the negotiation game against a budget, not a person, which is why it's so lucrative because insurance companies have budgets, not feelings. That's how I would say it. And so they're not saying like, oh, that's my money. I mean, there's certainly negotiating and pushback, but there's nothing to be, if it fits in the budget, even if it's a little high, there's not that like, oh, I don't know. Can you throw in a, so yeah, that fits. Go ahead. And the housing specialist from Ailey Solutions that I work with, they don't care what price it is. There's, they have some restrictions and commission bonuses and things that you can learn if you get into the nitty gritty, but overall, they just want to close the contract and move on. That's their job. So it's, it's a perfect puzzle piece where these guys want to put families in good homes and you guys are sitting there with homes saying, I would love families and high prices. I'm like, sure. Mm -hmm. So it works out great. All right. So this is where I get the free advice <laughs> questions. You bring me on this podcast, you do get free advice. Yeah, I'm getting free advice right now. Okay, so here's the here's the free advice. This is the practical advice in, in the life that Rory and I live. Okay, with our, you know, we have five short-term rentals that we basically mostly short-term rent these places. Four New Hampshire, oh, one right? in Massachusetts. Okay. Four New Hampshire, one in Massachusetts, okay? So, you know, the first quarter is always 
the slowest. You know, we have one property near Ski Mountain, so it does you know pretty well in January and February. But March and April are are just slow. You know, like uh, it's just we call it mud season. Although you know, Noah Khan has uh, stick season is his song, right? In from Vermont, right? It's mud yep. season in New Hampshire. Yeah. Um, so, so what, what does someone like me do? All right. Where I might want, I might only want to find medium term rentals for those four months. If that, okay. You know, from May on, like, it doesn't make any sense in the world for me to short to medium term rent those properties because I make so much money short term. I just got a response. I just got a inquiry yesterday from corporate housing, you know, whatever corporate housing by owner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, they wrote like a really long, nice thing explaining who they were. They want to move back to the area. They have this dog. They have this. They have that. They want to come from July to mid-August. Yeah. You know, so I basically said, well, you know, we have this smaller ranch property, which is a two bedroom, which is next to the one that you're asking about. And I could offer it to you for 9,000 a month because that's yeah. what I'm going to make short term on that one little property. And like I floored them. They were like 9,000, you know, that's like that's almost $20,000 for just what we're going to do for the summer. You know, we can't do that. And I'm like, all right, well, good luck because like, that's what we're going to make in the summertime on that property. Okay. We're not going to make it in March and April. Right. So how does someone like me, build a relationship with ALE or something like that and saying, listen, I could, I could house people for these few months. So two, two suggestions. The first is literally your last sentence is most of the game. Tell them that's it. That's my big secret sauce. As I say, Hey, I have availability. They say, Hey, I actually have a claim in that area. Most people, I hope everyone is listening to this part of the podcast. Most people don't get midterm rentals because most people don't ask for midterm rentals. If you put your hands out and say, hey, I have availability, can you give me a guest? They'll say, here's what we have in that area. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But if it does work, there's your slow season solved. I ask, I outbound, I, it's, and I could show you all about how I do it and what I do specifically, but it's nothing's going to blow your mind. It's not like, oh, Mike's got this whole crazy, Mike asks for guests. The same way I put an Airbnb listing up and they come naturally, I register my properties on Ailey Solution and then I say, hey, what do you guys have? And so it's, it's as, as simple as the outbound, but here's the other thing that I think is important that people definitely, definitely don't realize. I actually just released a piece of content about this the other day. I have a drawing somewhere. It's not close enough for me to run and get it, but the, the seasonality for a short-term rental, it's busy season and then slow season. And that just, that's it. It's a normal uh, seasonality curve. For midterm rentals, I'm looking to get more money than short-term rentals in the busy season also. And then average prices for the rest of the year, we don't have a slow season. So it's if, if 3,000, just for easy numbers, 3,000 is your baseline and busy season, you're making 4,000 a month and slow season, you're making 2,000 a month. Then in my busy season on the same property as a midterm rental, I'm looking for 5,000 in this busy season. And the same, what I said was average 3,000 in the slow seasons that when you're making 2,000. Mm -hmm. And the reason that works is A, if you just, if you get something like, right, you're, you're making $9,000 for that month and your inquiry is, they're like, wow, I can't believe it. We were going to pay four and a half. You're right. Exactly like you did. I wish you the best of luck. There are four and a half thousand, uh, four and a half hundred dollars houses out there. Go ahead. We just don't have that. We have $9,000 houses. So you just don't take a booking that's less anyway. It's never a problem. It's all, it's all voluntary. It's not, there's no instant book is what I'm saying. And then if you aren't getting those, um, what was the other thing I say? All right, well, I guess I guess that's really is just you just wouldn't take it. But if you're asking for the bookings and you're telling Ailey Solutions, oh, that's what I was going to say. Actually, the budget's not feelings. When you're dealing with insurance companies and not the person who is individually trying to pay for themselves and their wife and their kids and their dog and their food, then you're going, hey, insurance company, I need you to cover this. They're saying, well, that fits in the budget. Here's your check. 
and they'll figure out the food and the family on their own. Yeah. And so it, it's like, you can ask for so much more from the insurer than you can from a, a person. And the same thing applies in travel medical. If I'm looking to do a deal with an entity, a hospital, a staffing agency, I'm talking to the recruiter whose job it is to place a nurse in their professional contract, but also then in their house. And the alternative to that would be that the company gives the nurse a stipend. In those scenarios, I'm either dealing with the company saying, hey, this is the cost of rent. This is seasonality. I'm sorry to tell you, but we are in the short-term rental market and this is $9,000 for these months. That's what it costs. If you can't give me 10, I'm just not going to do the deal. And that entity might say, okay, 10's in the budget. There you go. The nurse is going to see, is going to do what you saw on CHBO saying, oh, I get a stipend. That 15,000 they give me a month, they say 10 is for housing, but really that's my profit if I don't spend it. So I'm going to go find $5,000 housing. And then they also have to pay for food and car and dog and husband. So mm -hmm. it's, it's just always a thing. So I would say go to the business. Yeah, Rory, that's what we have to do differently, I think, because, you know, we've been fine with our short-term rentals. You know, we're, we're up year over year, you know, with <laughs> all the stuff that we've learned in our mastermind and all the optimizations that we've made, you know, know both technologically and just, you know, just messaging. And it's like a snowball. Like the better you do, the better the platforms reward you, right? You know, you just keep getting good reviews and they keep giving you more guests. Yeah. But all the people that I've, I've tried to get a medium-term rental from, it's always been the renter. Right. I think that's one thing I need to switch. I that's need to talk to these insurance companies because all these renters can't afford what I want. And it, every single inquiry just doesn't work out it, from what I've seen so far. So, you know, instead of giving up on, you know, medium to rentals as an idea, I think you're giving me the idea to actually try to switch the focus and try to switch who I'm talking to. That's the biggest thing. That's the biggest thing. And think about like you likely. Even if you could afford, you generally, you not you guys, but if you if you could afford a nine thousand dollar a month home, then I mean you're probably the type of person who's not looking to live in a nine thousand dollar a month STR on peak season. You want even something even nicer. Like it, it's always that game with the person is like, you know, they want they want as much as they can for as little as they could spend. That's natural. I would be the same way. I want to find the cheapest property that I could live in for three months. That's going to be baller. I, oh, I got the pool. I got the Baja lounge. I got the outdoor this, outdoor that. Oh, I'm going to have such a good time outside. That's the, that's the house I would pick. But if you're dealing with insurance, they, or any entity, they just don't care. They just don't care at all. Okay. That costs. Okay. That fits. Send done. It's, it's way, it's way easier than trying to negotiate somebody. All this value we're getting from Mike Stone. <laughs> it's uh, funny. That's why I started this coaching program, honestly, because I see all over Facebook, people get to Furnished Finder and then they're stuck. And they're like, well, I registered on ALE six months ago. I haven't gotten an inquiry. And Furnished Finder, everyone wants $3,000 a month for an eight bedroom with a pool. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it does get frustrating when that's all you're doing. Oh, but I'm on Airbnb and I'm on Zillow. Like, yeah, but there's so much more. There's so much more. And so my course is designed to give everybody everything i'm giving you know a decent amount here but like the course goes deep into everything what to say who to say it to the negotiation where to find them how to find more when to email them how to fill your properties when you're in the slow season and how to get more money in the busy seat like everything i'm just spilling the beans i've done like 15 of these contracts now i've procured over six hundred thousand dollars in midterm rental rent revenue and i've only been doing this strong for a year or so but two years total so i mean when was miami that was september 21 last year like 14 yeah, months ago yeah. Yeah. When I, was heavy. I had i had travel nurses before then and a couple other things uh so i wasn't completely new to it but that was my first real 
big fat insurance contract in, in that time. And the rest, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's so lucrative. It works calendar management, pricing strategy. There's so much to it, but once you do it, it works. You know, you just touched on something right there where yeah. sometimes when you find the thing that works, whatever the thing is, it doesn't have to be in the short-term rental space. It could be in, you know, long-term rental real estate. It could be in some other kind of investment class. You find that thing and then you go all in on that thing. And then yeah. next thing you know, a year later, you you look back at like how how successful that has been for you. You know, you're talking about just over a year ago, you're signing your first medium-term rental contract when everyone's having fun <laughs> downstairs in the bar and you're running upstairs to write that contract. Right. And now, you know, hundreds of thousand dollars of of bookings later, plus, you know, all this experience that you have and yeah. you kind of found that thing. Like, yeah. you know, and, and now you're teaching other people how to do it. That's what has that been like, you know, in actually having paying customers and clients and students, whatever you want to call them, uh, to learn from you? Well, before I even get into the students, the the other side of the relationships that I, the one thing you missed, you listed a few things that are beneficial from this past year of hard work, but maybe the best thing for me is, well, I guess I should say for all-star hospitality is how happy the clients are. I have clients now, I, I, I'm getting, making, I'm making them so much more money. First, in the short-term rental, you're making more of the long-term rentals, but then I push you to the mid-term rentals and no slow season. And these clients are like, holy shit, like this is this is just so much money. And so it's just so easy to make people happy. I, I just had a five-bedroom that I picked up in May. The owner said to me, he goes, I want this launched by June, and this is how much we want per month, and uh, June 4th is your deadline, go. And he was trying to be like a puffing his chest, kind of trying to be a dick, and I was like, no problem. By May 4th, a full month earlier, I had a, a uh, midterm rental in there. It was $3,000 more per month than he even needed. And that guy has been there since until October 31st when the owner moved back in for two months and then we'll start back up again. It still hasn't hit Airbnb and he's making a ton of money in the slow season. He's like, he's like trying to be tough, but I just did. I said, I'll do even better than you need. He's like, I don't even know how to react. So he's thrilled. So now I want him to refer me to more and more and I can bring that information yeah. to the next client. So it's, you know, the, the relationships and building the business from adding midterm rentals to my holster has been excellent. And then, and then, yeah, the students are amazing too. It's like, it's like you had a little um, off market deal right there. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. Little, that's, I mean, that, that's what happened too with the um, contract to door store. I was just saying, it's like, you know, I come to them with so much value. They're like, how do I even say no? Like yeah. it's, beautiful thing and then the students it's it's so rewarding too i i feel this crazy sense of responsibility now but i'm so confident in the system that it's like i'm excited i'm like look just do it it'll work are, are your students across the country like are they focusing in any specific markets it doesn't matter what market yeah i got arizona delaware um florida and new york right now covered and it just doesn't matter new york actually is interesting because they had the short-term rental ban um in Manhattan. Um, those guys are new students. I don't think they're in Manhattan though. So we'll figure that out as we go. They're just getting started. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it doesn't matter where these insurance companies deal with this nationally. It's better to be in a metro market where there's more people and more insurance claims and more things to go wrong in, you know, just more density. But other than that, it'll work actually everywhere. You are a native New Yorker, right? I am. Just yeah. like me. We oh, got yeah, here. Yeah. Are you well, you're, you're I'm New Yorker. Yeah. I'm from Rockland nice. County. So just North. Oh yeah. 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 That's where my step family's at. Yeah. You're, you're from Long Island, I think, right? Yeah. yeah. Long yeah. Island, about an hour outside the city. Yeah, I miss yeah. a whole other world out there, man. 
It's very different. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, we're not too far. Like we were just down there for, you know, one of the holidays where and I were with Cecily and, you know, yes. it kind of feels like New England, but not really. Like it's just a lot going on, like in the New York metropolitan area. Um, yeah. I, I miss that speed. I come out here to Arizona where, I mean, I went to undergrad in, in Massachusetts. So I'm familiar with the Northeast. And at least when I was in that area, Boston type of people, or let's say Massachusetts general area, we all kind of have a similar personality type. Mm -hmm. Arizona, it's so slow here. And the sense of humor is so different. And it's just, it really feels like I'm on another planet, but I like both. Well, how do people react to you? I mean, you're a ball of energy, like from the East Coast. It's, it feels like I'm an alien sometimes. Yeah. They're like, to me, it's so normal to like what other New Yorkers would find funny and they, you know, carry on with the same jokes and, you know, yeah. it, uh, there's a whole energy to it. Same thing when I was in Massachusetts, there's an energy to it. Here they're like, man, you just talk so fast. I can't keep up. <laughs> I, I don't think I realized you went to school in, in Mass. Were you UMass in Amherst? Yeah, UMass Amherst. Is, is that how you knew Tristan? That actually, no, it's not how I knew Tristan. I only met him through Mike Shogren's mastermind. Oh, okay. And then Tristan and I started playing hockey together. Once we found out that we were Northeast guys, we started, you know, talking a little bit more. He's like, yeah, I'm a hockey guy. I was like, oh, I'm a hockey guy. So he invited me to play on his team on weekends. And it's funny, back then I was like, oh man, I get to play with this awesome dude in the mastermind. I was like, this is going to be good for business and sports. I, I just want to be on this team, whatever it took. I literally had to buy a whole new set of gear that same day and then show up to the rink. And uh, now we've been good friends ever since. Yeah. I think it says a lot about surrounding yourself with the right people. You know, sometimes it's coincidental that you meet somebody that, you know, can be great for your life, both personally and professionally, uh, you know, but putting yourself into a mastermind situation or a number of masterminds where you're surrounding yourself with, you know, coaches and leaders that have done this different, um, you know, before you or doing it, you know, side by side with you. I think it says a lot that you went to law school. Like a lot of people that go to these professional schools think they know everything. And then you still kind of came you know, like with your handout saying, teach me everything. And like, you have, you talk about these coaches that are in the mastermind, you know, I have a great education as well and worked for a long time. And I still look forward to hearing what they have to say. Like, I don't feel like I know everything. You know, I think that, that there's a degree of humility with all of this to be able to do that. Oh, completely. Uh, completely. I think people have a nature that they want to be led. And if you're entering a space that you don't know, you're going to kind of go back to that nature. It's like, well, what am I supposed to be doing? And look to somebody. And we're very fortunate, uh, you know, Jason and I have this mastermind with Shogren, and then we have access to all of his coaching friends. And then even the people in the mastermind could be coaches in their own right, even if that's not what they're doing. I mean, to have that kind of leadership to show you that I keep, I, this is my favorite line is I, I feel like my coaches make sure that everything I'm doing is complete. So I know I'm not missing anything and correct. So I keep my head down and just keep going. That's, that's it. That's like, I need that sense of, of direction. But once I know what to do, then I can just go. And that has been worth everything. I mean, people complain about the prices of masterminds and I just don't see it. I've always made back way more than I've spent in masterminds financially straight up on paper, but then also the relationships and the fun that comes with, you know, being at conferences like Miami and meeting people like you guys, this doesn't happen unless, and you were saying right before we started recording, how many people you got to meet through this podcast that networking opportunity doesn't happen unless you put yourself in the room. And that's why I love being in the right room, learning the nuggets. Even that story I was sharing about the $60,000 deal I just netted, uh, that actually has nothing to do originally with short-term rental stuff. I learned midterm rentals, the idea of it from, um, I guess, Dr. Rachel and Jesse Vasquez and a couple other people. But Noble Crawford in a conference taught the idea of getting the contract and then getting the door, which I had never heard of before. And I was, that's just been in my head forever. Of like, how do you eliminate risk? 
Well, you get the money first and then deal with it later. And, I, and so that gave me that opportunity. Just being in the right room, that one nugget allowed me to go make 60 grand. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just so much wisdom right here. I mean, I couldn't agree with it more. And I'd love to go on for hours and hours and hours that you, Mike, will have you back on the podcast, but I do want to get to the final couple of questions we ask of all of our guests here, just to make sure that uh, we wrap things up on, on a high note. Uh, the whole thing has been a high note, but you know, we get to learn a little bit more about you, um, you know, with how you answer these three questions. Rory, I should say anything else that you have for, for Mike before we get to these? Just that I, I feel like this is not the end of this conversation. Um, we have so much to talk about and, you know, so many things that have their common interest. I think we'll yes. be back here again in the future. Absolutely. And I hope to be. I would love that. It's been a privilege so far. I appreciate the invite very, very much. And I would love to come back anytime. This is fun. All right. So first, these final questions um, is if you can get on stage for half an hour and talk about anything in the world with zero preparation, what would it be? Oh, the zero preparation is an interesting spin too. I think my natural default would be mindset work because that's the, my most favorite area of study. And, and I do call it an area of study. I read about it every single morning. I watch videos about it constantly. When I'm on YouTube, I'm not just down a rabbit hole. It's always mindset, personal development, or something specifically business. So that would be my most fun thing to just start. Zero prep. This is this is what I'm doing. I, I think I could add more value in other areas like midterm rentals as an example that is more direct like my unique selling point. I think there are other mindset coaches. Like I would say Shogun certainly a better mindset coach than I would be. But if you're putting me on stage with no prep and just give me something to talk about, that'd be my favorite. Yeah. I love those answers because, you know, usually the expected answers are what we just talked about in the whole podcast. But, you know, I like it when a guest like yourself throws in a totally separate thing that you talk <laughs> about. Second question, tell us something that happened early in your life or career that impacts the way that you're working today. I mean, I think the most impactful thing in my, in shifting my entire mindset and business was what I mentioned with my brother. I guess he just told me not to go back to earlier things in the podcast. You can, no, you absolutely can. When my brother called me and was telling me about um, personal development in the first place, when I was in that state of pain and studying for the bar and like, this is my everything now, I have to pass the first time. There's no excuses, no exceptions. And I was just like the pressure I had on myself and then everything else going on in my life that I feel like I didn't have time for wasn't eating right and wasn't sleeping very well. And then, you know, even that transition as that went into the clerkship that I didn't like and the job that I didn't like, like my brother helping me start on that personal development journey, that changed everything for me. That was the best pivotal moment in my life where I was like, okay, now I can actually really start pursuing things that I want. Because the first book I read was also Tony Robbins, Unshakable. I learned about stocks and the economy and, and investing generally. And then it was Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which was like, oh, I need to own things that pay me. And that was, you know, from there it was easy. And then Thinking Grow Rich was my third book. And yeah. so those three things as a whole, it's like, okay, I could do anything. I can make all the money. Let's go start. <laughs> I, I love the summary of Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I need to buy things that pay me. Yeah. <laughs> That's basically the book, right? I got an Apple phone, but I don't have Apple. That's right. not, you know what I mean? Uh, final question. Tell us something you're listening to or watching or reading these days. Oh man, my Audible is full. I have, I will read the same books or listen to the same books over and over again. I'm on a rerun of Outwinning the Devil simultaneously with Buy Back Your Time from Dan Martell. He's a new, new to me uh, influencer. Uh, I've only been following him a few months and I really like his, his content. So I'm going to try to dive a little deeper. Um, buy back your time is definitely one issue that I struggle with. I like to do everything. Um, it's probably, probably a control freak problem and I'm getting a little bit better at it, but not fast enough. So I need to push myself to be a better leader and stop 
getting my hands in everything. So that's that's my current book. Yeah. Yeah, just you wait until you're married and have kids and there'll be like zero time. It's I really would love to buy back some time, Rory, right? Like we're we're just struggling with that. Yeah, and offloading some responsibilities. It's just I do it in fits and starts and I've never been good at it. So I need to I need to read that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It is it's just so tough. I don't know where you found all the time to, to get all those audiobooks. And you're like, oh, I'm re-listening to this one. I'm like, re-listening to like I can't even get to the ones I want to listen to the first time. <laughs> Uh, best is before bed headphones fall asleep to it and whatever i hear last before i knock out that's where i'll restart the next day hey listen mike we will have you back on the podcast uh you know this has been a pleasure again we can go on forever and ever you have so much great information you've shared such great wisdom here you know both at medium term rentals and mindset and switching you know from the career that you knew and loved and studied for for so long into something entirely different risky and you know you're doing fantastic with all this i love seeing all your content online i love seeing how you're really putting yourself out there more you're really good at it so keep it <laughs> up i encourage you if you're, i'll put all the links in the show notes you know when this episode comes out if you're listening to this still and you want to follow mike it's mike stone group at on instagram and all all str so all-star hospitality but all str.com so we'll put that in the show notes too rory where can people get a hold of you um, if you just go to RoryGill.com, you can see all the different ways that you can get in touch with me and that I can help you out. Yeah. And and I made it simple too. So I now have a jasonmuth.com. You know, once I was able to get that domain back, you know, because it got hijacked, but I have ah. it now. So Jason, other you stole it? Well, I, that's a whole other funny story. I shouldn't open that in the conversation, but there is another Jason Muth who does real estate and I actually have spoken with this gentleman, but he is not the one who stole it. It was some rando. I let it lapse and, and then I got it back. So jasonmuth.com actually has all my links to all the places you can find me too. If you want to be on the podcast, reach out to me there. If you're still listening and you love the podcast, five stars. We love five stars, right, Mike? So we're always asking for the five stars. Five-star reviews, comments, uh, we read all that stuff. And if you want to be on the podcast, please reach out to me. Rory, Mike, thank you so much. Uh, this has been a great discussion. I've learned a ton, and I really enjoyed talking to both of you guys. Thank, thank you. Guys. Thank you.